recap just a little bit, um, as I usually do, but it, it was interesting to me that, that none, of, none of the communicators this summer really had a chance to kind of sit down and talk about what each other was going to be sharing. Um, I knew a little bit about some of the, maybe some of the videos that Lloyd shot because he had done some of those up at, up at Cedar Grove, but I wasn't um, very familiar with the content. Um, but the one thing that several of us did know is, is where we were headed in the fall with this study, um, uh, this, this book we're going to read, um, To Be Anxious uh, for Nothing. And uh, we're going to be doing that as a study, as a church study, um, primarily. Um, one of the ways we're going to do that is in our small groups on Wednesday nights. And so um, I think I've shared with this uh, several times, but if you're not plugged in on Wednesday nights, you're not plugged into one of these groups, I really, really encourage you to do that. Um, Wednesday night's an amazing experience for our entire family. There's things for our kids to do. Um, and it is, it is incredible to watch um, my kids grow uh, week after week and, and sing some of the th- songs that they're learning and, and talk about the things. And then as well as, you know, my wife and I um, are part of a small group table and um, just the relationships that we've built with them and, and that don't just um, happen on Wednesday nights, but those, they're sustainable throughout the week. And so if you're not plugged into one of those groups, I encourage you to do that because I really think that um, that God wants to do some incredible things um, in the life of our church, not only in those small groups, but, but through the studies that have, that have chosen. So, and I'm excited about where we're headed into the fall. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was here, um, and I spoke a little bit about, the title of my sermon was, um, One Bad Apple Spoils the Bunch. And I talked a little bit about um, how we, as human beings, have the knowledge of good and evil, that we ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that gave us knowledge and that knowledge in and of itself is, is somewhat neutral, but that how we apply that knowledge and what we do with it can be dangerous. I mean, it, it can be a good thing, but it, but it can be dangerous. And, and I talked about that, that there was a big difference between having knowledge and having wisdom about something, right? That, that knowledge is knowing something, but wisdom is, is having experience. And I, I used the illustration that um, I had watched my wife have two C-sections. I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with how a C-section works, um, but I have no business performing a C-section. I, I, sh- I, should, not be doing, I should not be doing a C-section. And uh, Mark was here, and he talked a little bit about um, ex- expectancy. And I was not here last Sunday, but my wife came home, and she's like, oh my gosh, man, that, that message was, was incredible that Mark did. And so I had a chance to go and, and listen to the message, uh, and it really was an, a, great, a great message. Mark has a little bit of an accent. I don't know if y'all picked up on that when he was talking. Um, I, I keep, and the hard part when I'm listening to Mark talk is I keep waiting. I, I had this Crocodile Dundee image in my mind, for those of you that might remember that movie, and I, I keep waiting for him to pull out this giant knife, you know, when he's talking. But Mark is an incredible, incredible communicator, and he did a great job communicating last week and talking about expectancy. And one of the things that he talked about was he challenged us that there's a high cost if we have low expectation of spiritual things. And that really resonated with me when he said that. And, and again, I kind of wish that he and I had had a little bit of conversation about what each other was going to be talking on because I think that what I'm sharing today could have gone before or after. So I'm going to do my best to tie that in. But that was an, that was an incredible insight that he offered us. I love the story that he, that he chose out of the Old Testament and, and how, how oftentimes um, when we receive the blessing or the anointing of God or we, or we begin to hear the promises of God, how oftentimes we lower our expectations or we have low expectations of what that's going to be. And so we, we so undersell what God is capable of doing in our lives. And, and we do it time and time and time again. And so he challenged us that, that as men and women of faith and, and as, as believers that we really should, we should expect great and mighty things out of God. 
And I think that that was an incredible message to kind of to launch us into the fall because I really do have high, high expectations of some incredible things that God's going to do in the life of our church. But I, I want to back up today and just kind of talk about expectations and talk about what our expectations are and how oftentimes we as believers, the reason that we, we don't go uh, before God or we don't step into the calling of God or we don't pursue the thing that God has with us with high expectations is because, because of the way we as human beings with the knowledge of good and evil and with our knowledge and understanding of the world, we tend to lower our expectations. And to, just to kind of start off as a, as a confession, um, I have, for the first, past 13 years I've been married, have been working daily to lower my wife's expectations. And I, 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 if she were up here, she would, and if she were being honest, she would tell you that, that I have been successful in doing that, right? That, um, that I have, um, from the very beginning, unintentionally lowered her expectations, but... Um, but wives, you probably can relate to this. You know, my wife used to have this expectation that if she asked me to do something or fix something, that it would get done, you know, within a day or two. Now her expectation is if we get it done this calendar year, I'll count that as a win, right? So, so oftentimes we, we come at matters with a low expectation. And so I want to challenge you that that, I want to start there today and go, hey, that, that is the human condition that we find ourselves in. And I want to share with you a, a couple of stories and an idea that maybe by the end of this will we'll, um, compel us to leave here maybe setting our expectations a little bit higher. And if you didn't listen to Mark's message, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. It's an incredible message. Back in the early 2000s, I was working... I owned a couple little little small businesses and was and making some money on the side and I was doing really really well for myself and and well on my way to achieving the goals that I had set um, for my life and then God completely interrupted that and stepped in and said hey I've got a different plan for you and he began to lay these desires on my heart to pursue full-time ministry and he began to kind of unpack a little bit about what that was going to cost and the economy of pursuing him and, and what that would look like. Now, let me just say that, that that was rather difficult for me because like most people, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, that, that um, if, if any of you remember back in the early days when you were in elementary school, when you begin to learn basic math, the, the most basic equation that we start off with, and I've got a slide to go along with it, is 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? That's a, that's a pretty basic, common formula right there, right? 2 plus 2 equals 4. And if we really stop and think about it, not only is that, not only is that um, formula pretty basic, but it, it is, for the most part, the foundational 
belief of our natural world, right? Like we, in our natural world, we've learned a lot about our natural world. We, we understand a lot about gravity and, and science. We understand, you know, if, if we're standing on top of a building and we drop something, we have a mathematical formula that will tell you how far or how fast that object will fall. We know how fast things accelerate. Um, we know a lot about how fast things move. And we have measurements and formulas to do all of that, right? And we live in a very natural world, and so that natural world has boundaries and it has formulas, and, and we like that, right? It's really neat because we know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and we can count on that. And because that is a foundational mathematical formula, it allows us to be able to predict everything else mathematically. I mean, you think about the complex physics that go into a lot of the things that we do, and, and we, because of that basic 2 plus 2 equals 4 formula, it makes the world make sense. And so it is foundational to how we operate. But I want to challenge you that knowledge can be a dangerous thing if we look at everything through natural eyes. So again, I'm, I'm about to turn 30. I'm, I'm going to pursue this full-time ministry. I've been offered an opportunity to, to do an internship. That internship has now... Um, at, at the beginning, it wasn't that complicated. It was going to be at a church that I was attending a couple of miles down the road. I was going to be able to work a full-time schedule, go in there and do what God was calling me to do. And so I had everything worked out. I'm sitting down with the Lord going, hey, this will work. You know, I'll, I'll do this. I can do this. I can do this on my days off. And I rationalized everything out, mapped everything out on paper. And then within a very short period of time, a couple of weeks, it became apparent that God's going, no, actually, <clears throat> I'm going to move you to Concord. I'm going to move you out of the community that you've lived in your entire life, away from all the people that you know. I'm going to move you to a, a community that you know virtually no... I, I mean, I didn't know anybody. I mean, it, the only person I knew here was the, the guy that I was following from Lexington. I, I did not even know at that time. I had just begun to, to meet Lowell and the staff that was here. So, I mean, I, I knew nobody here. And so I began to kind of flush that out, and it became apparent that... Um, that you know that the that I was going to be able to do a paid internship and and the church was gracious enough and when I sat down with my parents and I started explaining everything I was like okay so here's the deal God's calling me into ministry I'm going to be doing some online classes they're going to cost XYZ I have found an apartment it's going to cost XYZ and and we're going to we added it all up and I've got gas and food and utilities and rent and you know online uh, course charges and all this other stuff um, and I'm going to sell everything I own. And I have so far secured about $800 a month. $820 if you want to be exact. And my parents who are believers looked at me and, and some of the friends that I'd shared this with all look at me and they're, they're, they're looking at me like just like deer in a headlight going, you understand that the mathematics of this doesn't add up, right? Like you don't, you don't have enough money to pay rent and insurance and food and gas and all of that. Like you, not even close. I mean, you're, you're, talking, about, you're talking about taking a 90% or more reduction in, in income, right? But you've got virtually the same amount of expenses. And I'm looking at them and I'm going, hey, I get it. I mean, and at that time I had a house with a mortgage and I needed to get more out of my house than there were five houses for sale in my neighborhood. I needed to get more. In other words, I needed to, at the end of closing, I needed to walk away with more than the other four people were asking for their house 
And they had all had realtors and had their houses up for sale. And, and some of them had their house up. My neighbor across the street from me had their house up for sale for six months. And I'm sitting there having dinner with my parents. And, and um, my, my mom is just, she's trying, as a banker and as a business person, she's trying to wrap her mind. And my dad's an educator. And he's looking at it from a, from a logical standpoint. And, and they're going, this just doesn't make sense. I'm going, I know, I get it. Like, it doesn't. But I know that I know that I know that God is calling me to do this. And I know the economy of it doesn't work out. It doesn't add up. And, and you know, most of my friends and my parents looked at me and went, Hey, you know, you're, if, if this goes south, you're going to be a fool for having done this, right? And the only response I had was, I get it. But if this is God and I don't do it, I'm going to be the fool of fools not to. And I know it doesn't add up, but I'm going to step out in faith. And I'm, going to, I'm going to pursue God. I've got these high expectations and I'm going to do it. And so I sold everything and I moved down here. And I, I thought about that and I thought about how in that moment things didn't make sense and I thought about how oftentimes practical knowledge can be dangerous for us right like if I if I just simply went purely on the mathematics and, and guys in the room you probably understand this you, you can relate to this how many of us like I remember a few years ago our microwave quit working and my wife's like our microwave doesn't work let's just go buy a new microwave and I'm like I'm online looking at the schematics of the microwave I'm, I'm reading forums about this particular microwave and the things that go on I'm calling Bobby and I'm going hey you know, I think it's this and he's like yeah I understand how a flux capacitor I think it's something you get off, off the Enterprise I'm not sure it's from Star Trek but it's some piece that goes in there we found one on, on uh, eBay and we ordered it and you know we go in there and I mean and when you start taking this microwave apart there's a lot of parts to a microwave right and there's nothing worse for a guy than when you take something apart and put it back together and you got like three extra pieces, right? Like you're like, where did those come from, right? So we get this microwave taken apart and we get it all back together and I'm like beating my chest and I plug that thing in, I hit the button and nothing. So the next day I bought a microwave, right? And I'm looking at this situation, I'm going, that, that's, that's kind of how the logic is. The logic should say that I should just stick to what I know, that I should stick to what makes sense, that this doesn't make sense, but I sell everything and I move down here to do this internship. And I'm having, and, and I'll admit the first couple of months it was, there were things that worked out the way I thought they were, there were things that didn't. And I remember having a conversation with a mentor of mine that, that runs a camp up in the mountains. And, and, and I was just beginning to meet this guy. And this guy, he and his wife and their children live a life of faith and humility and trust beyond anything that, that I've ever seen. And in fact, oftentimes in my moments of weakness, I'll, I'll refer to Bill when Katie and I are talking. And I'll be like, man, I just wish I could be more like Bill, right? And so I'm sitting there having this conversation with Bill. And I'm talking about this internship. And I'm talking about all these things. And I'm talking about how the math doesn't add up. And I'm talking about how, you know, God still shows up and does things. And how it's just incredible. And it was the first time he ever introduced me. He goes, that's the beauty of living in the economy of love versus the economy of this world. And when you live in the economy of love, two plus two equals eternity. But the problem is that you and I fix our eyes on two plus two equals four. And he said, man, let me, it's, I'm, I'm excited that you're walking this out. I'm excited that, that you have stepped into this place, that, that you've dared to dream something so big that if God doesn't show up, it's going to be doomed to fail, right? 
And I long for those moments in my life where I, where I walk in that expectancy of things that are so vast and so big that if God doesn't show up, they're going to fail. And he said, I want to I challenge you to, to hold on to these moments and remember them because, because there's going to be times in your life where you're going to look at things and you're going to go, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how this is going to add up. And he said, and I can't explain it. There are times in which people put their faith and they pray for healing and they pray for this and it doesn't work out the way they thought it was going to and they expect great and mighty things out of God and, and those things that they expect simply don't happen. But I know that I know that God causes all things to work together for good. So I want to challenge you that in those moments of doubt, in those moments of fear, I want you to go back to the very beginning. And so as I was preparing for this message, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about in the very beginning of the, of the Bible, the, the opening verse, Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, um, on somebody had posted on Facebook, but it was basically two two guys. It was an atheist and, and a believer, and they're having this debate. And so the the physicist stands up and he he starts to make this compelling case about why God can't exist. And he talks about you know how you know he, and he's arguing about time and space and all this other stuff. And he makes this very compelling argument. And and mathematically, it doesn't work. It doesn't. I mean, God God doesn't exist mathematically in in this physics uh, perfection. formula and he said let me and he took the guy to this very beginning and he said hey <clears throat> based on your logic God has to exist within the, con within the context of creation but that's not what the scriptures teach us and it actually says in the beginning so God starts off by reminding you and I that it, at some point in time he determined what the beginning was, right? That, that he existed prior to that, that God had always existed. And at some point in time, he says this is the moment in which human history, this is the moment in which time, this is the moment in which creation that you perceive, this is the moment in which all the logic and reason that you've come to understand, it was at this point in time that I started it. But here's what's interesting about that. We know scientifically, we can actually do the math and work it out that sometime, at some point in time, we can actually go back mathematically to zero. And so he points out that the guy's own argument actually proves that there was a point in time in which God said, in the beginning. And so Bill was reminding me that we serve a God that, that is not bound by the natural laws of this universe. It's not bound by the mathematics of 2 plus 2 equals 4, not bound by gravity, not bound by the speed of light, not bound by um, a beginning and end to time. And that, that, that is the God that we are. I mean, that's the God that we serve. That's, that's who God is to us. I think about, Charles says it all the time, he reminds us that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And I love, love meditating on that, that, that the God that set everything in motion, that decided when the point in time was going to start, that that's the God that we serve. 
And he said, so when those moments of doubt, when those moments of, of when things don't add up, I want you to remember that the God that you serve, that you place your trust and your hope in a God that's not bound by the logic and the wisdom that you can understand. See, you look at the schematics of a microwave and you go, okay, each part has, has to fit in there and each part has to work properly. And if the totality of that happens, this machine works. And he goes, and from a logical, mathematic, scientific standpoint, that is the case. But thankfully, we serve a God that doesn't depend on that. That doesn't need a flux capacitor to do whatever it is that it does. I mean, a handful of fish and a couple loaves of bread and feeds thousands and thousands of people. Parts the Red Sea, raises the dead, causes the sun to stand still. That's the reality of the God that we serve. And, and so I want to challenge us as we start to unpack this economy of love that we've got to start understanding that, that the economy that we've come to understand is not the economy that we're bound to. That you and I serve a God that is limitless and has no boundaries. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about how God reminded me that, that one of the comforts in having creation and one of the reasons that he places in creation was this understanding of boundaries right like like if i'm going to if i'm going to help my kids understand something then i need to set boundaries for them right like i need to i need to set up parameters i need to set up guidelines and rules like one of the ways that we teach our kids to play with others is to help them understand that there's certain social norms and certain social rules that we go by right like we share you know we're kind we're courteous you know, we, we take turns, you know, we, we set up boundaries, right? So there, I, I want to be cautious that, that there are some benefits to a natural order of things, right? And so I want my kids to understand that if you step off of a building, gravity will pull you to the ground, right? But I also, God also reminded me that I have a much vaster understanding of the world than my children do because I've gained wisdom and been around a whole lot longer than they have, that I existed before they did. So I have some understanding, even though I'm teaching them simple things, I have some understandings of some vastness and some bigness, and right now they have boundaries, but I understand that as they get older, the boundaries are going to get broader and broader and broader and broader, right? There's several other ways in which I've experienced um, this economy of love, and, and some of you may, may be able to relate to this, but I remember very distinctly sitting here in church um, <clears throat> about five, five and a half years ago, and Katie got this really weird look on her face, um, and I wasn't sure if, like, I smelled bad or, I mean, like, it was just this really, really strange kind of somewhat fearful, but somewhat like, oh my gosh, and, you know, kind of look on her face, and so... Um, she starts to pass me a note. I'm sure some of you do this with your spouse in church too. You pass notes back and forth. So she writes me this note, and she's like, oh my gosh, the Holy Spirit just said something to me. And, and she's, she's got this bewildered look on her face, and she's like, the Lord said that we're supposed to have another child. <laughs> no, he didn't. 
No, I didn't. No, 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 he didn't. No. You smelled body odor, you, something, but that is not what the Lord just said to you. The Lord did not say that we're supposed to have another child. And she's like, all right, we'll, we'll talk about it after church. I'm thinking, there's nothing to talk about. We're not, that's not what he said to you, right? Like, I'm not sure what you heard, but that's not what he, not what he said to you. So after church, we start having this conversation, and she's like, I'm convinced that that's what the Holy Spirit said, and I really want you to pray about it. Okay, and like, like many people in the Bible, when the Lord calls them to do something that they want to do, they they do the most spiritual thing they can think of, and they look and go, "Okay, I'll pray about that." So we have a conversation in the next few months, and I tell my wife that the only way I said God spoke to Moses in a burning bush, He's going to need to set an entire forest on fire if He wants me to have another child. So in that October, that was in summertime in October, I head down to Atlanta to, uh, to a conference. There's about 12,000 pastors and church leaders at this conference, and um, I'm with a, a small group of about 10 or 12 people from Crossroads and a couple of other surrounding churches, and we had all gone to lunch on one of the, during one of the um, session breaks. And um, I'm kind of sharing the story about how Katie wants us to have kids and another child, and I'm like, I'm not having another kid, I'm... I'm getting ready to turn 40. I said, I've just, I've just stepped out of uh, full-time ministry at Crossroads to pursue this uh, ministry with Capstone. I'm not even sure how I'm going to, you know, in six months, how we're going to have salary. And I cannot remember what the third excuse that I gave, but it was a very logical, compelling argument as to why it was not practical for us to have children, another child. Okay, we've got, we got two great children. Um, don't need to have another one. We come back from lunch, and um, the first pastor to speak is going to stand up, and he's going to share, and he's really kind of challenging church leaders about how sometimes we are spiritually disobedient in the sense that, that we know God has called us to do amazing things, or he knows that God's called us to step out of the boat in faith. You know, we know that God's called us to do things that don't, that don't add up and don't make sense, and how oftentimes we're disobedient because we, we rationalize, we justify we, we have logical reasons as to why we shouldn't do it, and we use those reasons to justify our disobedience. And he goes on to say, I'm going to give you three examples. I'm going to speak to three people in this room right now. And the first pastor he speaks to is, is someone who um, is engaging in some, in some, in trading in, in some dangerous territory with maybe some of the things that they're watching on the Internet and doing and things like that and just challenging about how they've justified it and that and other. And he goes on to explain it, and he really hits home. And I'm sitting there in my mind thinking, whew, I'm glad I'm not that guy because that's some serious conviction coming down. And he goes, and the next guy I want to talk to is um, there's somebody in this room right now who the Lord has, comp- has made it very clear through your wife that you're supposed to have another kid. <laughs> and he goes, and you've got three reasons as to why you're not going to have three, those, that, that child. And he goes, the first is that you're 40 and you, and you think you're too old. The second is the economy of it. You don't know how your household can afford it. And I can't remember again, I can't remember what the third thing was, but the guy named it. Now, being with some loving brothers and sisters that I was with, those 12 people start screaming and yelling in this auditorium and pointing to me and saying, this, the guy's right here. I'm glad the first guy's buddies didn't call him out, but... Um, and so right, right then I knew that the Lord in front of 12,000 people had just called me out. So I came back and I told Katie, I was like, all right, this is what happened. You know, we'll, I, I, I believe we're supposed to have another child. And so, um, so we, we prayed about it. We got everything ready and, and we got pregnant that, that following summer. And, um, and then over Thanksgiving weekend, we miscarried. We lost the pregnancy. And uh, 
I remember thinking, man, Lord, what a horrible joke that was, right? Like, what? I mean, I, I get, I mean, I, I understand that, that people experience that, and I understand that it adds to our testimony, and I have grieved with people who experience that, but I'm going, Lord, I really thought that, that we would be different, that we would be sheltered from that pain. It just doesn't make sense, Lord. So <clears throat> the next summer, Katie and I get pregnant, and um, even that's a miracle that, like, we understand how it happens, but, like, we don't understand how it happened. Like, it just mathematics don't add up about the timing and everything, but we're in the gym one day working out, and Katie looks at me and goes, I think I'm pregnant. And she had the same look on her face that she had that day she told me that God was gone, so I believed her that time, and... And so, sure enough, we go to the doctor and, and through some, some tests and stuff like that, and they were like, gosh, it's really, really early on. And then fast forward a, a couple of weeks, and we find ourselves um, going in for what should have been kind of the first ultrasound where they can actually see something. And we're, we're watching the, the ultrasound tech, and there's some panic in, in her face. And, and she, the doctor comes in and says, hey, you have a corneal ectopic pregnancy. You need to go across the street immediately. We're going to need to go in and remove that. This is serious. This could, this, could, this, could, this could kill you. And I remember in that moment the conversation that, that Bill and I had had, and I was like, all right, God, I know that you, what you're going to do. I'm not going to own this. I'm not going to do it. I, I'm, I'm expecting you to work this out. So we get in the car, and we go across the street, and they explain everything to us, and the doctor says, hey, I want to do one more ultrasound just to make sure, and... He comes back in and he goes, I, I cannot explain this, but it, I can clearly see what the ultrasound tech saw on the first ultrasound, but, but it's, not in your, uh, it's not in your tube anymore. It's actually down on your cervix. And he said, but unfortunately, I think you're miscarrying again. And he said, and you're going you're gonna to go home. And he, he prepares us for what's going to be just this miserable weekend. And, and Katie and I just decided we were not going to own that. And we, we got friends to pray for us. And we, we, you know, we just prayed and we prayed. And we knew that, that somehow God was going to work us out. And we go in on the beginning of the week. And, and the doctor does another ultrasound and comes in and goes, I have no explanation, but you have a viable pregnancy. And so the next few months were rough where Katie would have what we thought was a miscarriage. She would, she would just have, you know, one minute she'd be fine, the next minute she would have massive cramping and bleeding, and we would rush to the hospital, and we'd be in the hospital for a couple of hours only to be told we can't find anything wrong, go home, and back and forth, back and forth. And then on February 12th of 2014, in the middle of a horrendous snowstorm, Katie's uterus ruptures at 30 weeks. And they rushed Katie into surgery, and <clears throat> Gabby at that time was almost completely outside of her uterus, and Katie's uterus had completely dissected, and Katie is hemorrhaging to death, and and Gabby's heart rate's down into the 30s, and it's just it's just this horrible situation. The doctors come in a few hours later, and they start to talk about Gabby in the past tense, and and they're explaining to me how poorly her scores are, and just painting this really really grim picture, and. And Katie is still in surgery, and they're unable to fix everything, and they've given her blood, and, and it had gotten to the point where the, they just decided to close her up and hope for the best. And, and luckily, there were some nurses in there that just said, hey, we're just going to pray, and they prayed over Katie, and the bleeding stopped. But they told me that my wife was going to be on a ventilator and was going to be um, in a medically induced coma for um, several days, and that Gabby would most likely um, be in the hospital, that we probably had you know, a three- or four-month road ahead of us. And I'm sitting there going, 
all right, God, I told you I couldn't afford this. How, I mean, I, I'm, in my mind, I'm thinking about the astronomical bills. I'm thinking about what's my life going to be like if my wife doesn't wake up, and I'm, I'm thinking about what, what's, my, what's our life going to be like if, if Gabby doesn't make it, and, and I'm just, I mean, all of these things are just pouring and raining down on me, and, and in that moment, thankfully, I had some incredible friends and family that were with us, and and we just began to pray, and we were like, you know what, Lord, we're, we're going to trust you. We're going to expect you for great things. And, and before long, this peace began to come over us, and, we, and I, we went and ate dinner. We went to the cafeteria, and we ate dinner, and we said, you know what, God, we're, we're believing that, God, you're going to call everything to work together for good. And four hours later, I go upstairs, and I can hear Katie talking. She's extubated herself, and she's sitting up talking. Within a couple of days, Gabby was off of a ventilator and off of a CPAP. <coughs> 30 days later... Gabby's leaving the hospital. And I remember the, the neotologist we were talking to was, was not a believer, and, and we had had a couple of conversations about faith. He was very much aware that I was a, a pastor and a believer, and he, uh, he looked at me and he said, I just want you to know I have no scientific or medical explanation as to why your daughter or your wife are alive. I don't. I have no, no understanding. One of the doctors there, other doctors there was, was Hindu and said, the only explanation I can offer you is that the creator of the universe simply does things that defy science and defy logic. And, and sometimes I'll share the rest of the story with you, but, but God did really take care of everything in ways that just are incredible. And as I was preparing today and I was trying to think about how do, I, how do I then take that story, not just about the blessings of God, but translate that into a, a much deeper moment for you and I. And I was thinking about Romans. And in Romans 5, 7 and 8, it says, Rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't want you to miss what Paul is sharing with us here because if anybody understood religion and understood the natural order of things and understood scripture and understood how the law worked and understood all that, it was Paul. Not just was Paul, but it was all of the Pharisees. And I want you to think about how, how odd that it is that the, that the people who had the most knowledge, the most wisdom, the most logic, had the greatest understanding of science and technology and everything at their day could look in the face of the Messiah and miss him. And the reason for that is because they based their, their knowledge of the Messiah on practical worldly economy. See, in their mind, they thought that the Messiah was going to come and was going to overthrow Rome and the government and was going to establish them as the dominant power, you know, because, because they're looking at it through the grid of normal human government and kings and all this other stuff. And so in their minds, that's how all of this is going to work. But, but nobody could have conceived or perceived that Jesus was going to come in the form of a baby and was going to be born in a filthy hole in the side of a mountain in a manger full of animal excrement in the middle of the night, homeless. But the economy of love is so much bigger. 
I think about Jesus' ministry and I, I think about how he healed the sick and I think about how oftentimes in those moments they were teachable moments because logically the people who were watching the healing wanted to know what that person had done to deserve the affliction that they had, right? Because it was this natural wisdom would say, well, you're afflicted because you made choices that would make you afflicted, right? I think about how Jesus ate with tax collectors. He was frequently found hanging out with, with drunkards or prostitutes and, and some of the most heinous people in the community, right? That he had conversations with people, intimate conversations with people that were of the opposite gender and were of a race that, that, that they despised. He, gave, he forgave some of the most horrendous sins and his entire ministry was based off of assembling one of the most, probably the worst ministry team ever assembled in human history. I mean, you got, you got literally, you got Peter and a couple guys who were basically, in our terms, were, were not just high school dropouts, they were middle school dropouts. You've got people who were tax collectors, which would have made them traitors to their own country. You got other people who were fighting against Rome, who were literally terrorists. And God, Jesus assembles the, the worst ministry team possible to demonstrate his love and his economy to the world. And he did things in a way that defied all logic and all reason. And then he allowed himself to be wrongfully accused and persecuted and crucified. In fact, Matthew sums up in, in chapter 19, Matthew shares with us the story of the rich young ruler and how the rich young ruler comes and he wants to know what he needs to do to get into heaven and he looks at God, looks at Jesus and he goes, hey, um, what do I need to do to get in heaven? Um, because I've got all this stuff together and Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, pauses and goes, well, why don't you tell me what you, what you think you need to do? And so he's like, all right, I got this great idea. Here's how it works. Okay, I'm going to do blah, 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 blah. And Jesus is going, okay, well, you need to do this, this, and this. And he's like, yep, done all of it. So the two of them agree that there's a punch list and, and he's gone through that punch list and then Jesus says, okay, well, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And the guy goes, well, I mean, I, that, that just defies all wisdom and logic. Why would I do that? I'm out. And he walks away. In fact, not only was the rich young ruler so discouraged, the disciples were so overwhelmed by, by what Jesus was saying and doing that they looked at Jesus and goes, okay, well, if a rich man can't get into heaven, how can any of us get into heaven? How can any of us hope that you're the Messiah and that you're going to do what you're going to do and, and all of this is going to work out? How can any of us believe that? And Jesus goes, in verse 26, says, well, with man, it is impossible. You guys are right. You, you, you're, you've just discovered the flaw in your logic and your wisdom. Because if you look at the mathematics, if you look at the, at the, at the logic behind it, it is completely in, you are completely incapable of doing, of saving yourselves. But with God, all things are possible. So you and I are completely dependent on a Messiah. We're completely dependent on a Savior. We're completely dependent on a healer and a redeemer and a restorer. We're completely dependent on a God who is not bound by the earthly problems that we face. 
We're not, we don't serve a God who is completely dependent on a not yet found medicine to bring healing. We're not completely dependent on some psychological discovery that's going to allow two people to rekindle their relationships. We're not dependent on, on a world who says, well, if you'll just raise your children this way, everything will work out. And then we see that it doesn't. But rather, we're, we're dependent on a God who goes, in spite of all of that, in spite of the possi- impossibility of all of that, with me, all things are possible. I want to invite the praise man to come up and close with this thought. One of my favorite stories is the story of the prodigal son. Most of you know the story. If not, I'll, I'll just give you a, a real quick abridged version of it. You've got this, this son whose father is wealthy, you've got, and he's got a brother. One son does everything that the father asks. He's obedient, he's helpful, he does everything. The other son is he's selfish and prideful and arrogant and immature and irresponsible. And he wants nothing to, he does not want to sit around and wait for his father to die to get his inheritance. So he looks at his father and goes, hey, rather than me just sitting around waiting on you to die, why don't you just give me my half and let me be? And so the father looks at his son and says, okay, fine. He gives him his inheritance and his son goes off and he, he applies all the logic and the wisdom that, that he could possibly have earned in, in those many years of life. And, and he applies all of that to his life and, and he squanders everything. And he wakes up one day and he's, he's homeless and he's hungry and he's starving and, and he finds himself eating food out of a pig trough. And still consumed by the logic of this world, he begins to reason, well, wait a minute, my father's a wealthy guy. If I go back home and I explain to him the situation, perhaps, because even his, even his servants have a roof over their head and they eat. So if I go back and I explain everything and I reason with him and I give him this, this prepared logical story, then maybe perhaps he'll let me live in the barn and then I'll at least have a meal. And I think most of us are like that if we think about the circumstances that maybe we're driving to the oncologist or maybe we're driving to the lawyer's office or maybe we're driving to the bank or maybe we're driving to the, the nursing home or I, I don't know what the circumstances are, but we're going somewhere and, and we're in our minds, we're trying to reason how we're going to make all this work and, and if we do this, and we, then maybe this will happen and if we don't do this, then we can avoid this and we have those conversations. And I was thinking about the prodigal son and how when he stood up in that moment, he had a very logical understanding of what he was going to go do. And I, I wonder what was going through his mind as he walked home. Because, see, it wasn't the long walk home that changed his heart. It was the father's response when he got there. Because he had reasoned that the best he could hope for was to be a beggar and a servant. His father saw him coming from far off and he he rushes to him and he grabs him and he places a robe on him and he he looks at his servants and goes, I've been waiting for this moment. I've been preparing. I've fattened the calf. Go and prepare the feast because my son was lost and now he's returned. I'm not sure what your long walk looks like right now not sure what journey you're on or what circumstances you face but hear this it's for you you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air and the spirits who are now at work at those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Don't miss this part. But God, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in his mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. My prayer for you and I is that we no longer walk and set our expectations on earthly economy, on things that we can reason and things that we can logic and circumstances that we can try to fix and control, but rather we set our hopes and dreams on a God who can do exceedingly abundantly more than we can imagine or hope for. Be blessed. Thank you.